live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. Welcome back to all our listeners after the Pesach break. Rabbi Hirsch, you just got back from Italy. Indeed, yes. You were the rabbi in residence. I've heard from actually a few people in the hotel. They very much enjoyed your shurim, your classes. Well, they were a captive audience. They had nowhere else to go. So <laughs> I'm not sure that that's a completely unbiased comment. But it was a wonderful program in Rimini. Back yesterday and going tomorrow to Spain in Yitzhashem. So we caught you on the day that you're in London. Correct. So we ended last time by saying that we would be covering the life of the most unusual rabbi of the 17th century. We got a few emails trying to guess who he was, and one of them indeed got him right. So who was he? We are going to discuss today Rabbi Yehuda Arya Mi Modena, an almost unknown figure who led an unbelievable life. We could run an entire podcast just about his views in Judaism on varied topics, Kabbalah, gambling, Christianity, Jewish music, Murano Jews, or an entire podcast about his life, kidnapping, murder, alchemy, his wanderings and changing fortunes. Or finally, we could have an entire podcast on why almost no one has ever heard of him, or at least heard of him in a way that they know his achievements, tragedies, downfalls, etc., And all that, despite the fact that there is a biography of his life. In fact, more than a biography, it's an autobiography, which is very personal. Although my life was made easier by discovering a 1,220-page PhD about him, written by Dr. Howard Edelman. You're one of the few people I know that finding a (laughs) 1,220-page would make your life easier. Um, Why have I never heard of him? Can we start with that? Okay, so it's partly based on a very real dispute in the 19th century that we will discuss next week, but partly on the fact that he was a genius. He was always looking for and never quite finding perfection, especially in others, it should be said. So who he actually was is quite elusive to pin down. And perhaps symbolizing the confusion of who he was, there's a lack of clarity over his own name. Admittedly, he had three. In Hebrew, his name was Yehuda Arie Mi Modena. In Italian, it was Leon Modena. Leon is a shortened form of the Italian name Leone. And in the Venetian dialect, the final vowel is often dropped. And in Latin, he was called Leone Mutinensi which is based on the old name for the city of Modena. Oh, I'd heard of him. Right, yes. Now, the thing is that he wasn't from Modena. He wasn't born there. He isn't buried there. And as he wrote, I sign my name in Italian, Leon Modena de Venezia and not de Modena. Neither his father nor his grandfather were from there. They were from Bologna. It was his ancestry, his great-grandfather Isaac, who had prospered there and adopted Modena 
as a family name, so Mi Modena, but not as a place of origin, so not Da Modena in Italian. Although he himself deviated from the family usage once, notably, on the title page of one of his Svorim, Midbar Yehuda, he called himself Yehuda Aryeh Modenai because he wanted the letters of the Hebrew to add up numerically to the year of publication, but whatever. Cecil Roth, who was a famous and brilliant historian and wrote much about Italian jewellery, it was in fact his PhD, tells us after a lifetime of writing about him calling him De Modena, he says, actually, I regret what I've done. I shouldn't have called him the De which is the measure of greatness of Cecil Roth, that he can publicly write about his faults, a trait not given to many modern-day historians. <laughs> okay, so you're saying that the reason I haven't heard about him because there's a lot of confusion about him. He was a bit of a mysterious character. Yes. And even about his own name. So an autobiography would have been, I guess, unusual back in those days. Yes, he begins writing his autobiography two months after the death of his eldest son, Mordechai, on November 7th, 1617. It's basically a sort of a zikorin, but he first conceived of the idea 24 years earlier. And although it's essentially the story of one family, it opens a window on northern Italian Jewish life in general in the 16th and 17th centuries. And it's got a wealth of fascinating detail about the economic, social and religious practices, although I doubt too many readers are going to wade their way through it. So the two-part podcast will uh, bring it to life. Um, his ancestors were Ashkenazi. They were moneylenders. Uh, they abandoned the increasingly inhospitable lands of Northern Europe to establish new homes in the credit-hungry lands of Italy. Although his father died without leaving any money, and Modena was left to seek his livelihood in unlucrative occupations, a teacher, a darshan, proofreader. And when you read the autobiography, you are assaulted by the recounting of his poverty, his debts, his hardships, and you develop a sympathy for him. Do we know anything about his ancestry? Well, he writes about his grandfather, Rabbi Mordechai Modena, who was famous throughout Italy as a rabbi and doctor. In fact, the Shalshela Sakabola, Gedalia ibn Yechia, listed him as a leading Talmud Chochem in Italy. And uh, according to the grandson, Mordechai Modena had begun to write a legal compendium similar to the Shulchan Aruch, but his early death cut short his efforts and only few of his psochim remain. Charles V, who was the King of Spain and the Holy Roman Emperor, made Mordechai Modena a knight of the Golden Cavalieri, as he did to all medical graduates in Bologna. Mordechai made rapid advancements as a physician, and he incurred the jealousy of the other non-Jewish doctors in Bologna. And therefore, in 1530, when he was kicked by a mule, they bribed the colleague who was treating his wounds to kill him by poisoning him. Sounds almost like fiction. That's the least of it. Wait till <laughs> we progress further into Leon Modena's own life. Leon's father we will speak about in the context of 
his own life and trials, which lasted 77 years. Now, there was a famously chronicled major earthquake in Ferrara on November 17, 1570, um, a few months before Leon Modena was born. And because of it, Ferrara became pretty unlivable. So Modena was born in the ghetto of Venice, and it always was the place he wanted to be and the place where he wanted to make a name for himself and a living. At his bris, Rabbi Menachem Azaria Fano, the Ramami Pano, or Fano really, a prominent Makubal and rabbi in Italy was the Sunduk. And the Modena family left Venice quite soon after he was born, uh, by mid-December 1571, because there was a five-year charter that the Venetian authorities had given to Ashkenazi moneylenders, and it was coming to an end. And since the charter only was obtained after a lot of difficulty, the chances of renewing it didn't look promising, so they left to safer shores, and they returned to Ferrara. And on the way to Ferrara, when they're getting off the boat at Francolino, Leon Modena's parents gave him to a non-Jewish porter to hold. And then they sort of turn round, and the porter and their son are missing. There is a person standing there called Shimshon Meshulam, who is a scholar, Hebrew scholar, and he's also the manager of the business affairs for Isaac Modena, for Leon's father. He gives chase for two miles and he eventually sort of reaches the porter. He grabs Leon from him and he beats the guy up and he brings little Leon back to his parents. Oh, wow. So he was kidnapped. Yes. But despite this kidnapping scare, the Modena family continues on to Ferrara and they live there in great comfort because at the time Isaac was prosperous and he bought a beautiful mansion. He built his own mikveh in it. But the gracious life of a Jewish moneylender would soon fade away because by the time Leon was six, a period of 15 years of decline set in for his father until his death. In the spring of 1579, Modena was jailed, the father was jailed because of an accusation by a church cardinal for a debt of one and a half thousand ducats, which Isaac had actually paid. But Jews frequently incurred Christian anti-Semitism, and they had little means to defend themselves. And even when the father was released after six months, the family's hardships and losses didn't end. All of his money was held back for three years, and all the accusations meant that they had to put a lot of effort and money into defending it. It was a very anxious time. The family lost almost 8,000 ducats and became impoverished and emotionally shattered. This is all the financial side, but as far as young Modena was concerned, at the age of nine, he was sent away from home to study with Rav Cheskia ben Binyamin Finzi, who was one of the greatest Talmudic teachers of his generation. And in the next few years, Modena learned how to play music, sing, dance, write Hebrew and Latin. Sounds exactly like my childhood school. Yes, it was a typical curriculum for Jewish boys 
Jewish boys in northern Italy in the 17th century, that is. Although, obviously, because he was a child prodigy, he excelled in all of these areas. And as we will see, he would use every single one of these during his lifetime. By the age of 12, his formal education meant that he was able to write fluently in Hebrew, carry out public speaking. He'd been exposed to areas of terror which included Kabbalah. And during his teens, he would write a tshuva, a rabbinic responsum on um, prayer, on tefillah. He would translate parts of an Italian piece of literature. He would author a kina, which had the same sound and conveyed the same ideas in Hebrew and Italian. In other words, the rhyming of it was the same in both languages. And he authored a lengthy dialogue on gambling. And we have all of these today. So, you know, you can assess his genius yourself and see how brilliant he was and how much he had learnt at such a young age. I don't know how much we've discussed generally um, the historic Europe, the education system for young Jewish boys and girls. Was this regular? Was this uh, just in Italy that they were having such a high level of education? It was reserved for people of means or for, you know, perhaps the, the children of the rabbi. But in the main, although Jews were literate, they did not have, first of all, an education beyond the age of, I don't know, 12, 13, nor exposure to such a broad curriculum. That would very much have been typical to Italy, even for uh, wealthier parents. Mm-hmm. Now, that meant that this boy despite his father's financial setbacks, was being groomed for great things. And in 1590, he got engaged to a girl from Venice, and everything seemed to be going in a positive direction. From this time on, however, tragedy and misfortune surrounded him. As his wedding day drew nearer, which was scheduled for June 15th, the family travels to Venice And their anticipated joy turns to anguish because they found Leon's fiancée, Esther, sick in bed. Initially, it was diagnosed as something minor, but it became apparent that she would not recover. And towards the very end of her life, she asked to speak with him in private and said, I wasn't allowed to become your wife because it was decreed on high. She said vidui, she confessed her sins, asked her parents and her aunt for a blessing, and she died on Friday evening. They returned home, and during the summer of 1590, a devastating drought struck the town in which they were living, and Leon Modena, his mother, and others in the family all suffered from hunger and sickness for most of that year, and their father was unable to provide for them. Now, meanwhile, his mother and his ex fiancee's mother urged him to marry the sister of his intended, which he did on Friday, July 6th, although he was somewhat reluctant. And by the way, the idea that both his original date for marriage and his subsequent actual marriage on Friday was because they couldn't afford a lavish wedding meal and it was quite customary to get married on a Friday as a result and have the Friday night meal as the the, the wedding meal. 
Immediately after his marriage, he is ordained as a chaver, which is the preparatory step to becoming a rabbi in a Venetian community. And this took place in the Italian synagogue in front of the three senior rabbonim of Venice, including the Av Bezdin, Rabbi Huda Katzen-Ellenbogen, originally from Padua, the son of the Maram Padua. And his rabbinic career seemed to be settled. And can you tell us a bit more about what it means to be ordained as a chaver? So that means that your educational level has been recognized as being thorough and that your years until now have been spent in productive study and therefore it would be assumed that a few years down the line you would become a full rov. You'd be given, you see, to call it smicha is not doing it justice. It's far more than what smicha is, is today. And therefore he could reasonably have expected that within the next five years he would take up a position in Venice. What he could not foresee was that the lay leaders in Venice, who were constantly challenging the authority of the Rabbonim, would raise the minimal age for rabbinic ordination, and he would only be made a rabbi at his 39th birthday, so probably 15 years later than he expected. Nevertheless, he still made the move to Venice in November 1592, and at the time about a thousand Jews lived in the ghetto amongst a total population of probably 140,000. Why was Venice seemingly the place to be? I mean, you just said it only had a thousand Jews. Why not Rome or elsewhere with a much larger Jewish community? Well, Venice was the easiest place for a Jew to live back then. By 1592, the Jews of Rome had been in a ghetto for nearly 40 years, and the conditions were much harsher. Right. And the religious freedoms were also easier in Venice, or just the physical conditions? No, that was also the case. We do not find the Roman ghetto producing anyone of note during the ghetto years. It's very different in Venice. It wasn't unlimited, but it was definitely more free. And therefore, becoming a rabbi was important. His reputation slowly spreads. He was asked to speak in the shuls, not as a guest speaker, but as the official speaker, remembering that back then the rabbi's job did not include speaking in public. They had a darshan for that, who had to be very good because that was his entire role. And it was considered a very public honor, which often led to a position. And Venice is very regulated. It's an unbelievable amount of red tape and hierarchy. But his major problem was that he could not produce enough income. And this would lead to his experience with gambling which was quite widespread in Venice, Jewish and Christian Venice. And it first occurred during Hanukkah in December 1594. He writes about it, that he felt seduced by Satan, who he identified later in his autobiography as a Christian. But instead of making ends meet for him, he lost 100 ducats, which he could ill afford. And this gambling escapade caused him much distress and guilt. And soon after this, he spoke of his impetus for writing an autobiography, perhaps partly as a need to confess his gambling. You said first, did he come back to this practice or was it a one-off? 
Now, he did come back to this practice. We will discuss this more comprehensively. The, the, the Satan, of course. Next week, yes. And if you recall, I said earlier, he wrote a treatise on gambling when he was a teenager. So this is all building up to what we will talk about next week. And he now finds himself without adequate means. So he's got to move out of his apartment. He crowds with others. He starts teaching very young children in order to make ends meet. He didn't enjoy this. And then he has family personal setbacks. In March of 1596, his three sons became gravely ill with smallpox during an epidemic. 70 children died within six months. Mordechai and Isaac Modena, two of his sons survived and Avraham did not. Then on December 22nd, 1596, during Hanukkah, his wife, Rachel, gave birth to a daughter and 17 days later, the child died. You know, nowadays, these two losses in one year would devastate people. But it is an unfortunate testimony to the times in which they lived that like you know, most of their contemporaries, they were resigned to infant mortality. We speak about it in theory. You know, in the olden days, children died young, but this is an actual chronicled personal diary of it. It's very real. Now, gradually, he found sources of income. He taught, he composed letters for students, students who needed to write outside of the city. He was engaged as the speaker in the main shul. He also earned money composing um, verse and poetry for births, weddings, funerals, tombstones. In fact, it brought him prominence beyond the gates of the ghetto. His most profitable poem, even though he doesn't actually write about it in autobiography, was written after Maria de' Medici, the wife of the King of France, Henry IV, gave birth to a son. And as part of the Venetian celebrations in the infant's honor, Modena wrote and published a poem in Hebrew and Italian, which became known to the non-Jewish world. But by 1602, he's still struggling financially, and now he turns to alchemy. So for the less informed of our listeners, uh, what is alchemy? Alchemy means trying to convert base metals into gold or potentially silver, and also trying to discover a universal cure for disease. And now it involves expense and danger because, you know, the reaction that could be created by fusing chemicals together. I assume he must have eventually seen through it. Pretty much, but you have to know he wasn't alone in pursuing alchemy. This was the end of the heyday of alchemy, which would have been practiced by kings, popes, emperors, clergy, Charles II, Isaac Newton, right, still was given to this type of pursuit. It didn't clearly bring him any uh, any fortune. So he needs work. Yes. So he now looks for works out, outside of the city. He would go at the end of the summer until after Yom Tovim. And in August 1604, he went to work as a teacher in Ferrara. He went alone. And it must have been promising because he then brought his family. And he lives in Ferrara for three years as a private tutor to a wealthy Jew and as a sort of a mugged and teacher to the advanced students of the community. Now, the interesting thing is that in Ferrara, he is able to function as a full rabbi. It's only in Venice that he doesn't have this right. And this sort of manifested in various ways, including his involvement in a famous 
argument, bitter argument, about a mikveh in Rovigo. There were only 17 families living there. But this machlokas just went on and on and had all the rabbis writing their opinions, and he gets involved in it. He's there for three years, and then in March 1607, the Venetian rabbis are able to reassert their authority over the community by issuing an edict of cherem, of excommunication, against anyone who would go to the secular courts. So Modena now feels that rabbis would have authority and that as a byproduct, Jewish publishing would suffer less interference. So he returns to Venice and gets involved in the printing world uh, as an editor and a proofreader, um, as an author, and involved in publishing generally. Were Jews allowed to publish in the 1600s in Italy? Uh, well, sort of a yes and no. In other words, they could publish, they couldn't own a publishing house. They couldn't own a printing press. So Christians would do the work and the Jews would pay for it if the book got church and government approval. He published the Rashbaz writings on Halacha as well as works of Kabbalah. Um, then in 1609, he travels to Florence. He is in a group with several Christians, including priests, and somewhere between Bologna and Florence, some form of uh, altercation took place between him and the Christians. And while he's speaking with one of the priests, the mule that Modena was riding uh, kicked and hit the cleric in the leg. The rest of the Christian group claimed it was a deliberate attack, so they turned on him and beat him up. Now, uh, Modena had debates about Judaism with Christians all the way through his life, but normally maintained civil relations with them. Here, he's beaten up and he arrives in Florence, he's bruised, and it takes a month to recover. And he ends up staying for 10 months. But over the Yomim Naraim, over Shon Yom Kippur, he quarreled with the members of the community and he writes that his first seven months he'd been sick and miserable, and in one letter he actually suggested it would better to be in jail in Venice than to be the head of the congregation in Florence. So clearly didn't enjoy his time there much. In 1609, he is finally made a rabbi. He's uh, nearly 39, and he returns to Venice with real prospects. He taught there, and one of his most distinguished students was Rabshol Levi Mortira, who left Venice in 1613 and settled in Amsterdam and became the senior rabbi. And Mortira would draw Modena into the controversies in Amsterdam with regards to Da Costa and excommunication of Spinoza. We spoke about him regarding Spinoza. Absolutely. Modena also became a cousin. Besides for the income, he was also able to use his genius to create Hebrew music and to discuss the halachas thereof. So his duties are now to lead Shachris Mincha Mariv every day, to speak every Shabbos. He's the secretary of the congregation, and he's now speaking publicly to an audience of between three to 600 people, and they are discussing it as far away as Prague. 
In fact, he presented his formula for a successful drosher. He said if they ask you to speak for half an hour, speak for 20 minutes. And he discusses this in a halachic context, whether it's permissible on Shabbos to have a non-Jew turn over an hourglass filled with sand in order to time the sermon (laughs) so that it shouldn't be too long. And, uh, you know, he wrote that if he merited any praise for his sermons, it was because of their brevity. (laughs) So perhaps people should take note of that, too. By 1620, he is now the third signature of all the rabbis in Venice on official papers. And by 1627, he is signing his name first for copyrights and regulations, etc. So he's finally making it on some level. Yes. What was his family life like? His children, his wife? We'll deal just with his three sons this week and the other parts next week. In 1607, he banished his son Isaac, who would actually stay away for 13 years and become a gambler, a spendthrift, who'd be a heartbreak to his father. He'd wander through Egypt, he'd live in Brazil, and he would only really return to Venice after his father's death for any real length of time. No nachas there. No. The eldest Mordechai, like his father, but not because of his father, became very involved in alchemy, which, as we said, was a ultimately a futile occupation, but legal. But because of the amount of chemicals involved, his health was seriously affected and he began, began to have episodes of bleeding. By 1617, they had progressed from monthly to daily occurrences. Modena tried to cure him with medication. He consulted 11 doctors, Jewish, Christian, in person, in correspondence. And one night, Modena had a dream that his son Mordechai took a house outside the ghetto. And when he asked his son to show him where it was, uh, Mordechai replied that he preferred not to tell him because he didn't want his father to find him. And Modena interpreted this dream as a bad omen because in Venice, Jews aren't allowed to live outside the ghetto except when they're being buried, which they were on the Lido, and that meant that he was going to die. Shabashuva, uh, the son was still able to get out of bed and hear his father's drosha, but soon afterwards his health deteriorated and he died on November the 7th at the age of 26. That, so far, is two out of the three sons, but tragedy was to fall upon tragedy, and his son, Zvulun, who had taken to hang out in Jewish company that was very far from God-fearing, before Pesach, on March 24th, 1622, eight young Jewish men carried out a plot to kill him because they saw him as a rival, particularly over a woman who Modena names in the autobiography. And he writes that Isaac's Spagnoletta lured Zvulun to a house in the ghetto. And Modena himself arrived on the scene because he'd heard that something was going to happen. He must have heard a rumor and he wanted to bring Zvulun home. But when Zvulun appeared. He passed by his father without his father having a chance to recognize him. The gang surrounded him and cut his throat. And the father ran, said, you know, father, I'm dying. And he made it to the house of his uncle, but he'd lost too much blood. And on Cholomoed Pesach, he died three days short of his 21st birthday. And, you know, the sight of Modena and his wife following their second son to the grave in such a manner, caused much grief in Venice. 
And for the next four months, Modena pursued with a vengeance the case against those who killed his son. He spent time and money to make sure that those involved were brought before the Council of Ten, as it was known. And did they get caught? He uh, writes that they were all banished from Venetian territories forever. They weren't executed. And if they were to be caught within the Venetian Republic, they would be decapitated. And then Modena actually prayed that God should, you know, uh, kill them. And he, in his autobiography, he says he wrote, learned about the deaths of most of those involved. Although it must be said that Jews murdering other Jews in Italy wasn't an entirely unknown phenomenon. Modena at one stage was asked in a truva whether the prayer, the, the hashkava for the dead, should begin with the words Kel Nekomois, the god of revenge, if the deceased was murdered by another Jew. And one of Modena's teachers was killed by a highway robber. The perpetrator was apprehended and imprisoned and then executed. His uncle, uh, Shemaya, lost his life when somebody convinced him to put all his gold and silver into a business deal. But this partner then thrust a sword into him, killed him and stole all his silver and gold. Although the criminal there was also caught and was courted. In other words, um, cut him full. And all this means that at the age of 51, Modena had lost basically his three sons. One had died, one was murdered, and one was a near-to-do, you know, wanderer. And he was bitter, broken, and miserable. He felt he had no reason for living and he wanted to die. And he used uh, Psukim from Eov frequently in his autobiography at this stage. Yet, he would still author great works of halacha. He would teach and give smicha to many Talmidim. He'd be involved in many controversies, particularly regarding Kabbalah. He would live through epidemics, plague, arrest, and loss, sometimes self-inflicted, as in gambling. And we will come across some very real unedited stories of his life. There's plenty more to come next week, as well as the answer to why haven't we heard of him? Wow. I mean, you introduced him as the most unusual rabbi of the time, but definitely with the most tragic life story I've yeah. ever heard. Yeah. I mean, the story was just beyond. And yet, he, we will see how much he produced. Do we and know we where, him he wrote. Do we know where he's buried? Yeah, his, his cave is still there in the Lido, uh, another island near Venice, part of the Venice, uh, like Gideca, and uh, the island to the east is Do Lido. you take the trips to see his cave? So I've been to the Basic Forest, but to take trips there, it takes quite a while. I mean, relatively speaking. So generally. And talking about trips, I would like to remind our listeners of the upcoming Italy trip from the 12th to the 15th of June. Rabbi Hirsch, the inquiries have been flooding in. We got a few yes, just in the last we hour. Don't, we, we don't have a lot of space because there are only 24 rooms in the hotel. So we have a few more spaces. through the applicants. <laughs> Please carry on sending your feedback, your reviews, your questions to podcasts at jlead.org.uk and make sure you bag one of the last few spots left on the trip. Have a safe trip to Spain, Rabbi Hirsch, and we'll see you next week for part two. Have a good night. Thank you.